Hey folks, it's Chris Hewitt here, just jumping in before the episode begins this week to tell you that this week's podcast was recorded very early by our standards uh, due to circumstances beyond our control. We had to record the podcast on Wednesday afternoon and we were hoping that if major news broke in the period between recording the podcast and putting the podcast up on Friday, that we would be able to get back in and find time to record uh, a news insert. Now, as I'm sure you know, Ray Liotta, the great Ray Liotta, passed away unexpectedly last night. I'm recording this on Friday morning uh, very, very quickly before I go into an all-day training session. That's one of the reasons why we are unable to get into the booth to record a big section. Ray Liotta passed away and there was all sorts of news uh, of a more frivolous kind coming out of Star Wars Celebration. Uh, Jodie Foster appearing in True Detective Season 4, all that sort of stuff that we really want to talk about and have time to do it justice and to pay a proper tribute to Ray Liotta. So unfortunately, we're not going to have time to record that for this week's podcast, but I can assure you that we will talk about all these things and pay a proper, respectful tribute to Ray Liotta in next week's podcast. So there you go. Just wanted to explain that and get you up to speed. And now the show can begin. Enjoy. podcast this week, we talk to the man behind most of the men in Alex Garland's Men, the one and only Rory Kinnear. And we feel the need, the need to talk to Top Gun Maverick star Miles Teller. And also the need for speed. We feel that as well. All that and more on the movie podcast that takes full responsibility for being awesome. That's (laughs) right. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, we are not in our grey, depressing pod booth because of a scheduling nightmare <laughs> that I will never fully tell you about. Uh, we're recording this over Squadcast. We're recording this remotely, and I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning this week. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? I'm I'm well, thank you. Yes, I, I take full responsibility for things too, but will in no way face any consequences for doing so. No. So that's and, super good. And that's, that's the important thing. That is the important thing. Uh, we're also joined by our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. James, what are you taking full responsibility for this week? Oh, everything, the world, all of it. Such is my cross to bear. But we carry on regardless. We do. Because we, we were hired to do a job and that we're going to complete that job no matter what that job is or how bad we have been at doing that job. We're going to, we're going to just plow on and continue that job to the best of our ability. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm enjoying so, this, 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 this contemporary satire that you're putting together. I don't know. I, satire? I'm just talking in general terms. I don't know what you could possibly be referring to. We just think Drink. it's really important to take responsibility for one's actions. Right. That's all. Yes, yes that, that's very much so. But hey, listen, we are awesome. You're awesome. Yeah. I think positive reinforcement is the way to go with this week's podcast. You guys are awesome. Helen, you're awesome. James, it's awesome. I'm here. I can't do it. I can't do it. But anyway, <laughs> we are awesome. We, and are we awesome. forgot to mention this in this last week's show. Uh, we got a nomination. We, we did. got a nomination. Yeah. 
Won you got award. two nominations. Oh, Helen, I didn't say this just so you could bring it up. And no, I didn't want to brag about stuff. Uh, but we have. We've been nominated for a big old award, a big old podcast award uh, at the BSMEs, which is the British Society of Magazine Editor Awards. And it's a big old noise. The only biggest magazine awards uh, in the industry. Because there so are several, so I understand. Uh, it's the biggest laundry section in Ireland, and we've been nominated for best podcast. We won't win, of course, because unfortunately, the judging process means that the judges have to listen to the podcast in order to evaluate it and assess it. And basically, once that happens, we're fucked. But we got nominated, and that's good. And it really is an honour just to be nominated, given the kind of shit we come out with. So that's wonderful. And Chris, you are also up for, is it Best Features Writer? Which is yes. very well deserved. I'm confused. Were there no other feature writers around? I'm, I'm, I'm not following this exactly. Imagine how bad everyone else is if I got nominated. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, on we wrote features. Wait, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. You both wrote features. Where was your nomination? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but wish us luck because the award ceremony is at the end of the month so who knows we may be bringing home the silverware and we're going to parade we could go on a parade an open top bus parade through the streets of London <laughs> well just get, get one of those tourist buses yes. <laughs> and just stand there waving <laughs> oh my god oh my god oh my god we have to do that if we if we if we, if we win this award we have to go on one of those tourist buses and now and again just wave the podcast trophy at disinterested passersby and tourists and dogs. That would be amazing. Are we, in? we should Are definitely we in? do that. Virtual pinky promise. I'm in. I'm in. Okay, we're in. Okay. So- it's safe because we're not going to win, so it's fine. <laughs> we're not going to win. We're not going to win. But if we do win, open top bus parade, I will map out the route. <laughs> I, will, I will inform the police beforehand. So they already fully track my movements, but <laughs> they will know where we're going and be able to cordon off certain streets because there will be a throng, Helen. There will be a throng. <laughs> <laughs> Never wear a throng in an open top bus. I'm just no, I'm saying not. No. There, there will be a teeming throng, Jimbo. Shall we move on? Let's please, thank God. Let's do it. That's our, should we have a question? Yes. So let's you have haven't a told question. us what the question is. No. And you know what? I might not. So Hard to answer otherwise. Have a go at it. Okay. <laughs> what uh, do you think the question is? 42. No. Oh, Jimbo, what do you think answer. the question is? And what's one of your answers? How do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? And the answer is one that I've been looking for for a long time. (laughs) Uh, You can always press Command and Q. I did that once accidentally. Do you remember this? When we first started doing Squadcast, I actually did do that in the middle of the podcast, just trying to close another window, not really think. Anyway, it doesn't work well. well. I hope that the awards panel for the BSMEs is listening to this because that was a priceless (laughs) anecdote. It was a pretty good one. Do you remember the time that James accidentally quit (laughs) the podcast during a remote recording? No, I don't. But there you go. Please give us an award. (laughs) All right. The question is, I I sent a semi-panicked shout out uh, today and I got a number of excellent questions. Uh, and the one that uh, I caught my eye this week is from at Ellen Sharup, at Ellen Sharup on Twitter, who asked, best scenes set in an airport, as I am currently in one, this is Ellen, not me, and I've been told that my flight is delayed. Oh, Sad I face you. emoji. Mm. My flight got cancelled earlier this week, uh, so I, I feel your pain. Um, airports suck right now. 
Uh, I mean, immediately, Airplane comes to mind. Um, the scenes at the beginning of the film in the airport, um, you know, give me ham on five, hold the mayo. Uh, that everything, everything in that film is is genius, but including the mm. airport scenes, they're probably not the very best scenes in the film, but they're. It's no they Die Hard too. Well, Die Hard too was going to be my next <laughs> go to, wasn't it? You know, I love I love when Robert Stack arrives at the airport in Airplane. And he is besieged by all the the the, the chuggers, all the charity muggers, and like, like just starts punching them. Like Harry Krishna dudes and whatnot. And yeah, he absolutely goes through them like it's a big action sequence. Just beats the living shit out of them. It's absolutely glorious. Mm. Uh, but I am really surprised by you, Helen. I'm shocked. I'm shocked because I would have thought that you would have answered Casablanca in less than two nanoseconds. Oh, that's also on my list. But I mean, look, I, I'm a I contain multitudes. I'm allowed to love airplane as well. No one said you weren't. I mean, I but do. I, you know, just, I just, but yes, the the, the farewell uh, in the airport. I mean, that's an air, airport. I mean, it's an airfield more than an airport. You know, I see. I'm going like, to allow it. I okay. think I, I'm going to allow anything that isn't actually inside an airplane. Okay. So I'm going to allow runways. I'm going to allow uh, <laughs> luggage carousels. I'm going to allow backstage, if that's the right word, at an airport. Oh, so I'm like gonna, that bit in Toy Story Two. The great, the great yes. chase at the end through the luggage, uh, you know, doodad mahickeys that mm-hmm. bring the things to the watsits. Yes, uh, that's exactly it. Uh, again, not as good as one in Die Hard 2, but what no, is? No, but you know, it's up uh, there. I'm going to allow check-in. I'm going to allow running or, you know, just basically through lobby halls. So planes, and trains, arrivals. and automobiles. Planes, love trains, actually. and automobiles. James's say, favorite. Oh, the classic. Action. Oh God! I walked right into. I set you up did, a trap for myself. Did. Oh jeez! There was nowhere to run. It's oh. heartwarming, and you know it. <sighs> I want to take a shower. Except yeah. there's nowhere to run, except for as Helen was about to say, into the arms of Chris Marshall. So, <laughs> I mean, I was thinking the little boy running after the little girl, but you know, okay, whatever. I guess. Hey, that little boy is now a little <laughs> yeah. man. He, yeah, is. he is, and that little man <laughs> is one of the two guests we have on a very special podcast we have recorded about uh, the new Danny Boyle Sex Pistols TV show called Pistol, uh, in which I interviewed Thomas Brody Sangster for he is that little boy turned little man. He is a little drummer boy turned little drummer man. He's but a, now he's he is kind of a normally Malcolm sized McLaren. man, I feel like. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's normally sized, uh, I guess, depending on what unit of measurement you're using, of course. Uh, and uh, I spoke to him and Maisie Williams this week. So that's, that's available now for people to listen to. So there you go. Shameless plug is over. Thomas Brody Sangster, little boy. I have a shameless plug to do as well. And oh, a momentous God. piece of newscasting. Newscasting? Newscasting? Well, okay. I, I, an amazing bit of news, which may or may not involve... Anyway, what I'm trying to get at is Helen, Helen O'Hara makes her triumphant pilot TV debut on Monday. What, what? And this is a pretty momentous event. We've only been it doing is. this since 2018. Helen's never set foot inside the pilot studio. I mean, Chris has, but he's never been invited. Uh, but Helen is on pilot this week. Well, Very in fairness, exciting. I feel like you you knew what would happen if if you had handed that particular interview to anyone else. Viz threats yes. on your life. You know, it was an interview with. Can we say we can say it's in, an interview with the stars of season three of the boys, uh, the delightful Carl Urban and the far more important Jensen. Dean yes. Winchester Ackles. People who have been listening to this podcast for the last 10 plus years will know that the chance to unite Helen with one or more Winchester nipple was one that could not possibly be passed <laughs> up. And so we enabled this magnificent event to take place. We did. We did, did he say, my eyes are up here, lady? <laughs> he did not, but we were on Zoom, sadly, because I had to be in Northern Ireland for uh, a family wedding. 
Congratulations, Aileen and Mike. Um, and uh, congratulations, sadly couldn't do it Aileen person. and Mike, for separating you from the nipples that you could have been in the no, same this room is as. How much, this is how much I love my cousin and her new husband. You know, I am I am actually congratulating them despite the fact that they ruined my life. You know, so <laughs> there you go. That's that's true family love for you. That's it. Well, if you'd like to hear Helen finally, finally getting a Winchester in her clutches, then do listen to the new episode of Pilot out on Monday. Yes, yes, yes. Pilot TV, blah, blah, blah. Yes, yes, yes. But is there anything else that you want to talk about? Any other films with great airport scenes? Will you accept a spaceport? I, no, I don't think I will. Fine. Uh, but, but please, please tell me what you were going no, to say. No, anyway. no, I was just going full Starport, you know, Docking Bay 93, all that kind of business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. What are you guys saying? Should we accept spaceports? No, I think, I think, we should, I think let's I think we stick should with airports for now. We can do, yeah. we can do space, spaceports another time and, and talk about Total Recall and the fat lady costume then. Um, <laughs> no. That's a good one. Ooh, that's a good we, one, right? That is a good one. a really one. good one. There's a good, there's a good, in terms of talking of uh, airport security, there are two ones I want to mention. There's a really good one in David Mamet's The Spanish Prisoner, which stars Campbell Scott, where he is going through airport security I don't want to give it entirely away, but there's something that's been put in his bag, but he doesn't know no. that there's something in his bag which will incriminate him. And he gets a feeling, he gets a feeling. I think he he thinks of a clue or he thinks he has a breakthrough while he's waiting for his bag to go through security. And he just leaves. He leaves the airport. And then you see his bag going through the, the scanner and through the x-ray machine. And there you can see that there's a gun <gasps> that's been put into his bag. Uh, so that's a good one. Uh, I love that film. It's a really great, great film. But I'm also going to say, in terms of going through security, uh, Fish Cut Wanda. So pretty much the last 20 minutes of a Fish Cut Wanda is set in Heathrow, uh, where all the major characters converge upon Heathrow Airport. And so there's so many great scenes in that. There is Michael Palin uh, running over Kevin Klein with a steamroller and ye- yelling, you know, revenge, revenge for Wanda uh, outside in the uh, on the uh, the runway. Uh, that's really, really great. There's a cameo from a very young Stephen Fry who gets, uh, I believe, knocked out in the back by Kevin Klein, uh, his Otto. He hits him on the back of the head with a gun. But it's a bit where Otto, who is a CIA agent, goes through, well, or is he? Um, but claims to be. It goes through the airport scanner. And I'm pretty sure you can't do this. Uh, you certainly can't do this now. And I'm pretty sure you couldn't do it back then. But he has a gun on him. So he just takes his gun out. <laughs> and then as he's walking through the scanner, just throws the gun up in the air and goes through the scanner and then catches it again on the other side. So he, he tosses it around the side of the scanner. It's a lovely, lovely baller move. So well done to Kevin Klein. It's like the time that Jack Reacher kicks a gun through a metal detector on the... Uh, doesn't Isn't he thinking that men often have metal in their shoes and so the bottom part of a metal detector doesn't go all the way down to the floor? So he puts the gun on the floor and kicks it through and then picks it up at the other end. <laughs> other end. That's, that's, that's wow. smart. It's almost certainly filed under one of those things that Lee Child pulled out of his arse from writing those books, but still, <laughs> I like to believe it's true. I feel like there's a, there's a film where they're going through the metal detector and you see the... You see their skeletons Total and somebody recall. is like a robot. Is that Total, Total Recall? Recall, yeah, it's Total oh, Recall. Okay. Yeah, but we're not allowed to talk we're about that because it's a spaceport. Yeah, okay, it's a spaceport, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tenet has good good airport action. It does, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the timey wimey stuff happens on the airport. Yeah, that's a good one. And that's sort of um the freeport. That's right. Yeah, the freeports uh, section oh, of the airport. I would burn all freeports. They're bad. <laughs> shall we shall we do it in, in stages? Okay. So shall we do it in stages? So we'll, you know that may help trigger our our memories or jog our memories. Uh, so let's let's talk about um, check in, checking in, buying your ticket, going to the check in desk. 
I see my f- my favorite check-in desk interactions are mostly people who have been delayed or cancelled or are trying to sort out tickets rather than just buying a ticket. So it's people like Catherine O'Hara in Home Alone. Mm-hmm. It's planes, trains, and automobiles, especially the freakout scene. Um, those are the ones that come to mind for the check-in desk. Planes, trains, and automobiles. A classic. I just realised both both of those are written by John Hughes. The one you just said. Uh, the meltdown with the, the car rental lady. At the airport is extraordinary, or sorry, the fucking meltdown with the fucking car fucking rental lady at the fucking airport counter is fucking extraordinary. It fucking is. It it really is. Uh, So that's a good one. Jimbo, do you have anything that you want to say in terms of check-ins and whatnot? I mean, I kind of feel Die Hard 2 covers every single aspect of this, (laughs) given that the entire film (laughs) takes place at the airport. Well, true. But but also um, 12 Monkeys. Twelve monkeys. Twelve monkeys. monkeys. They've gone through um, security with you know a little bit of problems, but fine. And he sniffs it, and then and then it all goes horribly wrong while they're waiting to get on the plane. Oh, and that's the thing that they—that's the recurring image all the way through the film, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Oh my god, because a young Cole sees himself. Oh, it's all very—it's all very Looper. It is very Looper. It is. What is it about Bruce Willis and, and time loops and whatnot? I mean, you might as well ask what attracts Rachel McAdams to all these time travellers that she keeps dating. Well, know? speaking of Rachel McAdams, the end of game night. Oh, no. Oh, I thought you were going red eye. Uh, oh, red eye. But that's, on an, that's mainly on an airplane. I'm not sure. But there is that good scene in the uh, in the airport bar, I guess. But yeah, I'm going to go game night where they're on the airfield on oh, the runway no, at the died. end. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, no, he died. Which, for my money, is one of the greatest line readings in the history of cinema. And I had the great opportunity to tell Rachel McAdams that I thought that when I interviewed her for Doctor Strange 2. Uh, she was... Um, Amused. <laughs> I'm sure she was. <laughs> I also remembered the day that uh, I interviewed Ari Aster for Hereditary, and I asked him whether it was true that he had named the film Hereditary because you could slow it down to say "hered it a tree," and You're he a was similarly bemused by that. Um, <laughs> and, and the answer is no, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, but yes, Game Night. Game Night is a cracker. I'm going to throw in a couple more as well. Uh, both Heat and Bullet have great cat and mouse sequences set in and around an airport. Mm-hmm. Um, Heat famously, of course, finishes in LAX, where they shot in LAX, uh, which is crazy given what happens in that sequence with De Niro and Pacino. But it, that's amazing for me. Oh, Speed at the airport as well. Yeah, driving around the yeah. runways. Speed at the Ooh, airport. That was Casino great. Royale at the airport. Oh, that's a belter, isn't mm. it? That's mm-hmm. a belter. I'd forgotten that scene even happened when I watched it last time. I had no memory such a good whatsoever film. of that scene existing. That is a good one, though. That I is really a good like one. That. I mean, we haven't yeah. mentioned Fast and Furious 6 with the 18-mile-long runway. I mean, look, <laughs> oh, even, yes. even if three things are happening at once throughout that sequence, that's still a six-mile-long runway, which would be half as long again as the world's longest runway. So that's a special one. Uh, I'm also going to throw in a couple of others. Uh, Mid-80s, um, John Landis's Into the Night, which finishes with a confrontation, a showdown. A shootout at, at an airport. It's a very tonally weird film, uh, but a great one. And um, Midnight Run mm. also ends in, a, in an airport. And it ends, in fact, with uh, Jack Walsh, Robert De Niro standing outside. I think again, it's LAX, you know, and asking the cabbie if he's changed of 100. And uh, the cabbie says, get away, you bum. 
And then Jack Walsh says, looks like I'm walking, um, which is another one of my favorite line readings. But there you go. I love that. What about airport runs? Are there great airport runs for you? Airport runs, generally speaking, in a movie are that rom-com convention. It's mainly rom-com where a character realizes that when they want to spend the rest of their life with someone, they want the rest of their life to start right away. And sometimes the other person will have fucked off to the airport to start a new life. And so this the, the, the hero or the heroine has to run to the airport and get th- through all kinds of obstacles mm. uh, before they, they you know, can convince the love of their life. Well, this brings us back to love, actually, doesn't it? But then it, was a, love actually. it was a cliche that love actually was kind of playing on. But actually, uh, actually, a lot of the big rom-coms had already, I think, moved away from that. You get weird runs for love. I mean, look at um, Animal Attraction slash Someone Like You, the film with two completely different and equally boring names. Um, it has this run across time where she's chasing him across time to apologise for what she's done. But they live together. Like, where is he going to go that she won't <laughs> just like... Like, she could just go home and wait and he'd probably turn up eventually. So weird. Anyway. Well, you can't, you've got to think the airport run is no longer a thing because by the time they've taken their belts and their shoes off and separated their iPad from their other luggage, like it's, just, <laughs> it's not like you can dramatically run. You're talking like two, three hours to just find the fucker. Like, I'm just saying, don't bother. I think it used to happen a lot like in, in sitcoms and stuff, but it was a pre-2001 thing where you could actually go up to the departure gate. And I feel like it's fallen out of favour since 9-11 and yeah. since security started to be an insuperable barrier that you could only pass with a ticket. Yeah. You do sometimes get like characters who've gone up the desk and gone, what's the cheapest ticket I can get to anywhere that will let me through security? But generally speaking, I feel like you have to get them before they hit the airport now. Who can forget the time when Chandler ended up going to Yemen? To, yeah, uh, get I'm away going from to Janice. Yemen. I was literally just thinking of that. <laughs> yes. I was, I was thinking of Rachel turning up at the airport to meet Ross, and then it turns out he's come back with Julie. Oh, That's no. right. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. yeah. Friends is the answer for every Friends question, is the answer, pretty much, yeah. isn't it? And it is, there's, yeah. uh, but we're we're not talking about scenes set on airplanes. Maybe we could do that another week. I'm pretty sure that one of the films we're reviewing today might win every category in this particular one. <laughs> but you know, we'll see. Uh, all right. As ever, we're not meant to be. Uh, definitive in terms of our answers. I'm sure there are glaring examples that we haven't mentioned, but we're going to move on. We're going to move on. Uh, But thank you so much to Ellen Sharp for the question. And there are some other questions uh, that I have liked and that maybe we'll be getting to over the next couple of weeks. But uh, who knows? Maybe we'll do best scenes on an airplane. I don't remember doing that genuinely. Have we... Have we ever done that? We've been doing this for over a decade. We've almost certainly done everything, but, you know, we can do it again. We can do it again with a bit of freshness, a bit of of vigour. Maybe we could do it on the open top bus parade through London. Maybe. We can get a loudspeaker and we can start talking about the best airplane scenes or the best scenes set on an open top bus parade. Yes. Uh-huh. Let's All right. do So that. if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, you can get in touch with us via one method and one method only really at the moment, which is Twitter. I am at Chris Hewitt. You can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets or you can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again as Ellen Sharp did. All right, time now for our first guest this week. Who do you want? Do you want Rory Kinnear or Miles Teller? Let's start with Rory Kinnear, a local lad. A local lad. is a local lad for a local podcast. And this is uh, Rory Kinnear, who is a phenomenal British actor. Uh, you will probably have seen him in the likes of the James Bond movie, the Daniel Craig James Bond movies, where he plays Bond's pal Tanner. Uh, or you'll have seen him in... 
the likes of Black Mirror, where he played the prime minister who uh, was blackmailed live on air into fucking a pig. Um, <laughs> alarmingly <laughs> prescient <laughs> turn of events. Uh, he was a star, of course, of the likes of Count Arthur Strong. He's an incredible Shakespearean actor. He's a son, of, of course, of the great Roy Kinnear. Uh, but he is the star, alongside Jesse Buckley, of next week's Alex Garland movie, Men, which opens on Wednesday, next Wednesday, which is June the, I want to say... First. First? First. June the 1st. So it opens on June the 1st. And it is a very, very dark tale of a woman played by Jessie Buckley, who, after suffering a traumatic event, relocates to a rural town. And there she finds herself surrounded by a number of men who embody aspects of toxic masculinity. And in a very, very neat conceit, each of those men at least appears to her to be played by the same man with the same face, and that face belongs to Rory Kinnear. It is an astonishing, incredible tour de force performance, or performances, and he spoke to Amon Warman about how he pulled it off. I will say that, uh, as you know, Rory Kinnear is Tanner in the Bond movies, and there is, at one point, a discussion of No Time to Die and a massive, massive spoiler for No Time to Die. So if you haven't seen that... Maybe skip the interview until you've seen it. I'm going to try and flag it up in the timestamps anyway. But here we go. Rory Kinnear, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of men. It's Rory Kinnear. How are you, sir? Very well. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you, too. Nice to speak to you, too. I've got to, although I have to say, I'm still in recovery from watching your movie. I, yeah. I watched it last night and you thoroughly creeped me out, sir. Now, granted, it doesn't take much to creep me out, but you absolutely did it. So, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I guess, um, I guess, yeah, I mean, like, talking of recovery feels like you're going to go back to the same place. And I guess what we, li- what we like as, as artists is that sense that maybe you might be changed a bit by it. And the way that it asks questions and um, the way it sort of doesn't seek necessarily to explain itself as a film, that um, it provides just as many sort of provoca- provocations of, of questions as it ever does any answers, um, means that I guess you hope that that, that sense of what it, begins to provoke in you is explored rather than just necessarily I can't wait to not have to think about that again (laughs) right absolutely when when you watch a movie like this for the first time are you able to divorce yourself from having filmed it and be creeped out by it on any level or is that impossible for you Uh, not the first time it's difficult Um, I think the first time one ever see something back but that you've been in your you're very much sort of putting the film together as an editor might in terms of the decisions that have been made um from your experience of, of filming it and and the disconnect is quite quite loud in your head when you fir- first time you watch it but once that mm. is sort of out the way um and i mean i don't always necessarily come back for it for a second viewing but this i have um there you yeah you begin to see it like an audience might and obviously there's a hell of a lot of uh knowledge that you have about particularly about the characters that what you've played yourself um that gets in the way maybe or but uh or or you know informs the decisions that I've made maybe you know more than an audience might be questioning them uh but i guess yeah the second time began to sort of see it as as what it is cool it's good to know that i'm not being peeped out by myself that you too I also being kicked out. That meant yeah, that yeah. <laughs> many, many, maybe different way. <laughs> um, so there's a lot going on in this film, and it means a lot of different things to different people. I think. What were your initial thoughts when you read the screenplay, and did it line up with Alex's and Jesse's? 
Well, yeah, the first the first thing was obviously, you know, being sent a script where they say they want you to play all the all the male parts um, is, you know, an interesting provocation in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but I also knew that like, I, 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 I'm, I didn't want, and I don't like acting to be the, the center of something. It should be serving a, a greater whole. Um, so I knew that there was a, there was a potential for, you know, the, the playing of all these parts to be the, the thing that people take away from it or the thing that takes the attention. And I knew that once I began to read it, that Alex's intention was not that, that it was there serving a purpose, serving a thematic purpose, and that he was he had made the decision with a seriousness of purpose. So uh, you know, the first thing I, I met him for is, uh, when I met him, wanted to say is that uh, I want all these characters to exist just as credibly within this world as if they were being played by different people. Uh, and it's my job now to make sure that they are, are all uh, stitched within this, you know, village life as seamlessly as you know the natural world itself, um, and I knew that was going to take you know a, a, a degree of work to be able to you know make sure that I knew who all, the, who all these people were, but I guess I was I came on board early enough in the process that I was able to sort of start the ball rolling with who they were uh, on the ground level, as it were, and and. Uh, being able to send off ideas and biographies that I created for all those characters to Alex and then to to Lisa and Nicole in costume and makeup that we were able to all begin this sort of uh, conversation uh, together, um, going down the sort of the same avenue together. Do you always write biographies for the characters that you play? Uh, yeah, uh, but I also, so, you know, I, I basically wanted to approach um, each character that I was playing as if I was just playing them in this film. And that was the only, the, that was the only role I was cast as. Uh, so I, I knew that, uh, they all, you know, they were all had to be distinct, but that wasn't, um, that wasn't my sort of jumping off point. Uh, that was, it, they all grew out of the, the, the lives that I created for them. Um, and so it felt quite, quite organic rather than necessarily, oh, quick, I'm playing this person, so give me some tea. <laughs> no, I like that. So with a film like this, I have to make my piece that I'm probably, probably not going to know and understand everything when I leave the cinema. Um, like all the symbols I still don't quite get, for instance, uh, in this film. And as an actor doing this stuff, are you okay with knowing only what you absolutely need to know or do you like to know everything? Yeah, no, I mean, you can't, you can't ever really know what you're in. Um, and you, you also can't play what you're in. You, you can only play the character that you're, you're playing and how they interact with other people. Um, and, it, and, that's, and I guess that's trying to be as credible and uh, uh, as, um, uh, yeah, I guess that, that's, you don't want to show, show up the seams uh, or that you're acting or, you know, you want a, an audience to be transported into who these people are um, in terms of what the, the film is, what it means in terms of uh, maybe even the genre that you're working within. That's all someone else's work, really. That's a director or a writer's work. You can't really play, uh, can't really play a genre, even in comedy. You've sort of still got to play the truth, or, albeit, you know, it's a truth that makes people laugh. Absolutely. Did you figure sort of all your questions out and did you get sort of the answers from Alex uh, to your initial thoughts on the script beforehand? Um, was there a period beforehand where you, where you got together and, and hashed up all that out or were you still asking sort of questions as you were filming on set? Yeah, I don't think ever Jesse and I sort of ever sort of sat down and thought and, and said to him, what do you mean by this? 
Um, mm. I feel like uh, I feel like we had quite a good sort of mutual understanding of of where we were going with it, um, and also a trust that uh, that Alex uh, was was making the film that he wanted to make, uh, and mm-hmm. that's all you sort of really really want to see an impassioned director, uh, and albeit this sense that he was very keen to to collaborate with us, so that you know if you're making suggestions. Uh, he was very open to them, very excited about them, but each one was going to be investigated in terms of how it impacted the rest of the the tel- his telling of the film, uh, and that meant that you know just as many were rejected as were accepted, and often if he accepted them, there were further uh, suggestions made by him or by Jesse. Um, it really did feel like we had sort of complete ownership of of the performances that we were giving and the scenes that we were working off, but how they were all necessarily stitched together was up to him. Love that. So you're playing a multiple characters in this film. Which was the easiest to slip into and which one was the trickiest? Um, I don't know. I think that that, that I sort of knew that I, I was going to have, given the sort of the nature of, you know, uh, an independent film, that you were going to have to be um, nimble and agile with the switching mm-hmm. between the characters. So that meant I had to sort of know them before we started shooting. Um, and obviously the first time you are a character, um, it feels like you're going to have to, you, it takes a while to sort of feel comfortable in those shoes. But I guess because we'd had so much, uh, costume work, so much makeup work that I sort of began to, they had begun to seep into me. So, you know, say the landlord, which was probably the character that I played for the least amount of time. Uh, yeah, there is something quite uh, sort of intimidating about walking onto a, a set and knowing that you've only got to, you've got to hit it within like two and a half hours. You can't, you know, and then you will never play that character again. But I guess that's why I probably did more work on those that were doing the least than I did on the ones that I knew could have more impact in terms of, and what I was going to be able to investigate further on camera. Assuming you have a good agent, I really hope that you try to get paid nine times over for this, by the way. Um, he, yeah, she did. And, um, unfortunately, she just started very, very low. <laughs> to bump those prices up, add a few more zeros in there. Uh, <laughs> but I love that. Would you get different reactions on set depending on who you were that day? You mentioned the makeup and the prosthetic work that you had to yeah, do. Yeah, and it was uh, it was quite revealing as in just in terms of human behaviour um, that, you know, I was Rory and I was emerging from uh, my trailer as Rory, but obviously I looked completely different and people treated me differently entirely. Um, and when Jeffrey was on set, everyone sort of like the sun came out, everyone thought it was kind of fun party time and they found him sweet and silly and, and people wanted to, people wanted to talk to me and hang out with me. Uh, if I came out as the vicar, I sort of, I got shunned. I was ostracized. Uh, and you sort of remember trying to, uh, remind everyone that you were still you. I wasn't trying to stay in character in between scenes, but you know, people's attitudes to you completely changed depending on basically how you look. <laughs> That's very, very interesting. How about with you and Jesse? Were, were you guys sort of, you know, on the same page with that? And, and did you feel that you had to sort of stay away from her a little bit, given that you two are playing these characters? Or were, well, were you, were you guys... it was basically us on set together, and then we were basically staying in a hotel. And we, because it was during the end of the lockdown, it was just the two of us together again. Um, mm. If we had tried to stay separate, it would have been incredibly lonely eight weeks. Uh, <laughs> so luckily, we got on really well, and both of us have a sort of a similar uh, attitude to our work of 
taking it but not ourselves that seriously uh and also when you're doing something that is quite uh grueling then uh, sort of the release valve of laughter is even more essential so uh uh, no, it, I couldn't have imagined doing it, doing this film with someone with whom I didn't get on quite as well as I did with Jess. Glad to hear it. This is, I believe, the fourth time in six years where you've played multiple characters in the same project, which is wild. Is there anything you learned the first time you did it that served you well on this project? Well, it's it's a question of patience, particularly when you're acting with yourself in a scene. Um, and it's a question of, you know, imagination. Quite often, uh, there's been sort of different ways that, that the the filmmakers themselves have approached it uh, in terms of like having stand-ins that look like me, having stand-ins dressed like me, having stand-ins learn the lines or having me, my voice having been pre-recorded, played. Uh, so that's kind of interesting what you find more useful in, in trying to bring it to life. Uh, but yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd little thing, little period mm. of one's career in which you've been asked to do it quite so often. Mm. One thing that men might have on those other projects is that I believe this one was shot chronologically. So how helpful was that in helping you portray all these characters? Yeah, that was um, incredibly useful. It's the first time I'd, I'd work like that. And Alex does like to work like that. Um, and yeah, it, it means that you're, it's so much easier to keep a handle on, on where you are um, and how an audience might be feeling or uh, receiving these characters at any one point. Uh, and it is as close to, I guess, like working in the theatre as as you get uh, on film in that you are able to be um, inspired by the, the work that you did the day before in leaking into, into the next day. And there's a, an energy that that provides, which is right, rather than necessarily trying to imagine what, what might have happened or trying to remember what might have happened, uh, which is how you usually work. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you uh, about your career a little bit, because you are one of the most versatile actors that we have. You're on film, you're doing TV, you mentioned theatre uh, earlier. What what drives you? How are you choosing your projects these days? Well, I, I really love acting um, and I really love that the sort of the moment of acting, which is on stage. That's, you know, when the when the lights uh, go down in the audience and the, the lights go up on stage and then uh, on TV and film that's between action and cut uh, and, uh, and I still find that moment still uh, incredibly um, rewarding uh, and I, I haven't grown tired of it um, which I'm really sort of glad about and maybe that's because uh, each I try and each thing I do to be different from the thing that I've just done. So if I've just done a play, I want to you know I want to work on the screen and and the sort of vice versa. Uh, and yeah, being able also to sort of to write, having done some direction, it's you know it's, um, it's I feel incredibly lucky to be able to do the thing that I, I love doing. Um, and so I don't get I guess maybe too bogged down in. Um, how I'm perceived or, you know, uh, what people see me as. I'm just constantly interested by what acting offers me. And I know that um, by by being able to act, I can, I, I still basically am scratching that slightly addictive itch. You are one of the few people who knew James Bond was going to die before everyone else did, which is incredible. What was it like holding on to that sequence for months? And did you tell anyone? You know, probably did. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think probably my partner knew. It's funny, yeah. In the, in these, there's no one sort of sits you down and says, 
you do know this is a secret. You can't tell anybody. <laughs> Obviously, you don't, your kind of instincts as a as a performer is you don't want to ruin stuff for people. And it, mm. what was really lovely about seeing the film in America with Jesse was that it, we were um, we were sat in an audience of people for whom this was their first understanding of anything about this film. Um, and uh, and it's there will never be another time in which someone goes to see this film not really knowing anything about it um, or not knowing that I play all the parts or whatever it is. And so, you, yeah, your instinct is to, is to protect the surprise for an audience. But, yeah, there's no kind of like three-line whip that comes down from on high saying, if you say this, you will be imprisoned. <laughs> Fair enough. I think in other projects we hear, it's almost like the actors have, you know, a sniper sort of, uh, yeah, red yeah, dots yeah. on their head. So Anytime they good. mention it, yeah. <laughs> good. I think maybe we're, we're trusted to police ourselves. <laughs> very good, very good. Do you get any sense that you'll be back as Tanner in future or was, or was there a sense of finality uh, to it for you too? Yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, like I've never known from one film to the next whether I was going to be back. So uh, each one has just sort of been a standalone adventure. Um, uh, and it's obviously been incredibly uh joyful and rewarding to have been a, a part of them um and to have done you know four of them to have worked as closely with with daniel as i did throughout it um and to feel you know what michael and barbara create is this sense of not only continuity but family and you see so many people in the crew and um and both on and off camera coming back because it's a, a fun place to work um uh so you know it's been an incredibly rewarding experience on that front I can totally understand if they re- totally want to reset the reset the dial with a new, with a new James Bond, but I could also understand if they wanted some sense of continuity with the old guard. So um, I'm wait and see. Like I always am, waiting to see what they do with it next. <laughs> well, I hope you get to see uh, Tanner back on screen because I think you're playing very well. What's what's next? It'll be a spin-off series. <laughs> I would totally watch that. I will start the hashtag right now. <laughs> <laughs> what what's next for you? Uh, I'm doing a Netflix series at the moment, um, a US Netflix series, um, show run by a lady called Deborah Khan, who's done a lot of uh, a lot of American TV, fantastic American TV, uh, and it's but it's filming in London. It's about sort of US UK politics, and so yeah, a bit more uh, a bit more based in um, contemporary real world than the last ten minutes of Men. <laughs> fantastic! And how many characters are you playing in that? Well, thus far, I mean, I've only read a few episodes, but thus far, it's some for just the one. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I'm excited to see that. Uh, Rory Kinnear, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. Okay, so that was Rory Kinnear, and now it is time to delve deep into this week's movie news. There's been a lot of hot trailer action over the last week or so. Mm. So we've had hot trailers for <whistles> Thor Love and Thunder, which Ooh. this time it gives us an indication of what the, 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 the plot of the film is about, which is always useful. Mission, colon, impossible, dash, dead reckoning, part one, which doesn't give an indication of the film's plot, but does give an indication of all the various things Tom Cruise will be flinging himself off or clinging onto when that movie comes out next year. And the third trailer is The Grey Man, which of course is the current Empire Magazine cover film. Ryan Gosling going head-to-head with Chris Evans, directed by the Russo brothers. Very, very exciting. Which one do you want to take first? <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh. Um, I, I meant which film do you want to take first, Helen? Oh, right. Yes, of course. Um, well, let's just take them in the order you just mentioned them. Let's go Mission Impossible, 
Mission colon impossible dash dead reckoning question mark. What's well, the what's the punctuation there between dead reckoning and part one? Well, I Helen, must know. It shows how little you've been paying attention because yes. Thor: Love and Thunder was the first one I mentioned. <laughs> oh, darn. that is true. That yeah. is true. Let's talk, let's talk about Thor: Love of Thunder then, right. uh, because uh, and then we'll get on to Mission Colon Impossible Dash Dead Reckoning Part One. I will sum up the whole trailer for you, Helen, in three words. You will understand Thor, Gore, Thor. There you go. <laughs> That's those are the three main beats of the trailer for you. You had my interest. Now you have my attention, or the other way around. <laughs> I always forget that one. It's not even sense a line. To me. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> It's either you had my curiosity, now you have my attention, or you had my attention, now you have my curiosity. See, but the and line think, doesn't stick. I think it's you had my curiosity, now you have my attention. Okay. Yes, because that, that would make more sense. That makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, well, okay, so that from, then. From Django Such Unchained. memorable, memorable language. So yeah, this looked a lot of fun. Um, it hasn't really changed my opinion of the film. I expect it's going to be, be the greatest a lot of film fun. I've made. That, that was your opinion, right? That's the thing uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, look, I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be a good Marvel film, not a bad or an average Marvel film. I am hyped for everybody in it. I, I think it'll be massively entertaining. I'm a little bit worried, as I've said before, about tone and whether you can get enough emotion and enough No art. tone died in Endgame. There was a funeral for him and everything. Mm-hmm. That's Tony. You never, not even you called him Tone, you know. Just, Everyone um, calls him Tone. Nobody calls hey, tone. him Tone. Tone. Right. Anyway, okay. uh, busted. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the vibe of the film. Then is that okay? No, probably not. <laughs> Why did I You're say? You're worried vibe? about it maybe being a bit glib. I'm worried about it being a bit glib and us losing the heart. But I know that Taika Waititi can also deliver heart. So I'm hoping I'm completely wrong in that, and that's a very unfounded fear. Yes. Um, but I, I, everything in this looks fun and peppy and um, Natalie Portman looks cool and that scene of Mjolnir turning up and just sort of essentially almost, almost touching Thor's hand and then bouncing away again. That looks great. Um, and Gore the God Butcher, it's our first look at Christian Bale's character and I'm not sure if he's fully scary yet, but he at least looks interesting and different to the villains we've seen before. So, you know, good. Yeah, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, the f- film looks tons of fun. And uh, one thing I really like about the Gore the Godbotherer, sorry, Gore the Godbutcher character, is that he seems to be completely divested of colour mm-hmm. in a film that is going all in on the bright, splishy, splashy primary comic book colours. Uh, he is almost entirely monochromatic. And even yeah. his background seems to be monochromatic. So I don't know how that's going to fit in. Um yeah, I, I don't think that this is going to be Ragnarok Part 2. I think there's going to be a little bit more to it. I think they're, But they're clearly selling it as Ragnarok Part 2. But I, I just have a feeling that there's a little bit more heart here than perhaps we have been shown in the trailer so far. Jimbo, what's your take on it? Absolutely fabulous. As you know, Ragnarok is one of my very favouritest of the MCU movies. Mine too. Uh, and I just, I cannot, I cannot wait for this. I think Thor is hilarious at the worst of times and this does not look like the worst of times. I even have a soft spot for fucking dark world um yeah just just so much fun really looking forward to this and and interesting developments i still don't entirely know where this film is going but korg is amazing and having him narrate the trailer was joyous uh yeah i'm i'm very very much looking forward to this 
very, very, very much. Yeah, I think it's very clear now, if it wasn't already clear in the first trailer, that the Guardians of the Galaxy are a footnote in this movie. (laughs) They're barely a thought, and uh, that it's going to focus on Thor, the two Thors, Thor and the mighty Thor, uh, the returning Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, of course, uh, who has rescinded the mutual dumping of uh, Thor Ragnarok. Or and has she? she is, or has she? Uh, well, I presume she has because she's in the film, but uh, she's she's turned up and uh, as somehow a version of Thor with his powers and his old hammer. And what's this going to mean? And uh, it's it's Yeah. I'm I'm really intrigued by where this is going to go. I mean, is there a path? The last time we heard about her, she had been sent off to an observatory or a lab or something in Scandinavia somewhere, right? Do you I remember think so, yeah. when somebody was coming to threaten the world, and I think one of the Shield agents said, "Oh, we've sent her to blah blah blah." But I'm pretty sure it was Scandinavia. So, which is also <laughs> where Odin died and where the hammer was shattered. So there's kind of a like geographical, you know. Mm. Link oh, yeah. There. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff going on here. I, I know people were asking for a trailer breakdown in the way that we've done for uh, some of the Marvel movies like Endgame and uh, No Way Home and even Multiverse of Madness. We did uh, we did a trailer breakdown uh, podcast for that. Uh, we just don't have the time at the moment. Otherwise, we would have done one for Thor Love and Thunder and we would have done one for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, however... This will have to serve in lieu of that. Uh, it looks great to me. Uh, I I do wonder if this might be Thor's last outing uh, in the MCU. I I hope Take the Korg. Back. Well, I, I just I I wonder. I I wonder. I wonder. I Wendy. Uh, I hope that I'm wrong. I wonder, Wendy. I wonder if Korg narrating the trailer. I hope he's not telling this the triumphant story or the or, or the story of Thor's noble sacrifice. Yeah, as he. How gives his life to Gore the God Butcher to Dare you to say that of the Jane. strongest Avenger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but you know, that ain't his yeah. password. We just saw her in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Oh. Uh shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> uh but yeah, it looks great. I'm f- I'm I'm very, very hyped indeed for this one. Mm-hmm. And I'm mega hyped for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Yeah. And Jimbo, you were called out on the on I know. Twitter. I know. Uh, because you, you said, I don't like the the title and I don't like the idea of, of films being split into two parts. <laughs> and yet you regularly, <laughs> regularly uh, lose your shit over June, which yeah. is the same thing. Yeah. So, so, you know, explain yourself. What can I say? I'm inconsistent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll grant you that. That's, that's fair. You got me bang to rights, Your Honor. Yeah, I believe guilty. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but uh, it, I, I think it just, it's, I think it, it, bugs it just bugs me it does bug me like it's like it's like why can't we have like dead reckoning and then another name another so thing like infinity war and an end game yeah like I, I would prefer that and because i think that gives more a feeling that they are two films that are separate you know narrative entities that are thematically linked you know and i can deal with that even though infinity war and Endgame are basically one single story you know i i, I don't know like the part one just feels it feels it has the promise of an unfulfilling cinematic experience and i know i know that has proved to be not the case in many of these cases one can never accuse uh june part one of being an unfulfilling cinematic experience fellowship of the ring it's not even half a story it's a fucking third of a story but nevertheless it's still magnificent so i'm sure it's fine it's just there's that sense of you know I don't. I don't like a cliffhanger. 
I mean, I like cliffhangers in Mission Impossible because it's normally Tom Cruise hanging yeah, off a cliff. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't like the metaphorical cliffhangers. The, the hey, you know that thing that we were going to show you? You're going to have to wait another year to find out what happened. I don't like that. But, 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 also, but, how good does this look? It does look very good. It, it does, does look, look amazing. So, I mean, look, what I'm getting from this trailer, perhaps wrongly, is that um, Hayley Atwell is hapless scientist type or similar caught up in stuff and they have to things right around the world and with all of the globe trotting possible seems to be the way that this is going does a that seem foot. wrong no no it seems a lot like that yes there is stuff that requires them to hurl themselves out of things to sort out the stuff yeah and she's looking all like oh my god instead of being like i got this like a Re- rebecca ferguson so I, that's why i'm saying hapless you know um, so just look, everything in this looked amazing and bonkers and I'm super, super hyped for it. I've loved all the recent Mission Impossibles. Uh, I've liked at least all of the Mission Impossibles. So, um, Even two. I like it. I don't like love it, but you know, I have watched it more than once and will probably watch it again in my life. So Because of the hanging off the rocks, you know, and the cool bit with the cars spinning around. And the Limp Biscuit. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love a little um, bit of Olympus? My name is Cork. I'm made of rooks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually very, very seriously considering a, a Belt and Braces Mission Impossible rewatch. Yes. Uh, from the beginning. I've been, I mean, I've been, you'd be wearing belts and braces. I'd be wearing just braces and a belt. Yes, that's oh, no. exactly right. That's how I like to watch my films. Uh, no, I'm, I've been... Is that so you can hang <laughs> off the ceiling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's exactly that. It's Helen's got it. It's so that I can dangle from the ceiling. Is this the, the only way you could achieve orgasm? Oh, no. <laughs> Oh One should always be suspended from the ceiling when watching Mission Impossible. This is 100 percent true. Uh, I um, no, I'm, I've been wanting to do this actually for several years. And I've never got around to it, but I really want to like. It's, it feels to me like something like there's a proper like like Friday to Sunday endeavor. Like you could just plow through them across a weekend. I want to do that. All right. Yeah, I think this looks great. The Dead Reckoning Part One uh, trailer, and what I thought was really interesting is that it's taken a very very different tack from previous Mission trailers, which have you know, emphasize, you know, the story or the big stunt. And this basically goes, this is all the action and it's insane. And the only voice, unless I'm wrong, I don't think Tom Cruise speaks in the trailer. Mm. The only voice we hear is Henry Cerny returning as Kittredge. One of the, uh, one of the IMF uh, busybody suits who gets in Ethan's way in the very first Mission Impossible and as you know I've been lobbying for his return for many many years now uh, and so I'm delighted to see that he is back and he is once again getting right up in Ethan Hunt's grill and telling him about it's time to take to pick a side It's uh, so uh, there's, there's a feeling I do wonder if we may lose one of the big team, one of the core team at the end of this movie as long, I do wonder. I mean I have, you know I don't want that we don't want it, but um, but I do I do think it might happen. But uh, yeah, we get lots of of snapshots of what look like incredible action sequences. There is a, a car chase through the streets of Rome. There is a uh, running and fighting in the streets of Venice. There is a big sequence set atop a train. You get to see Si Morales. Uh, who I think is the film's main bad guy, uh, uh, you know, doing all kinds of uh, fun acrobatic shit. Uh, you can see a lot of Tom Cruise running, a lot of Tom, Tom Cruise driving, a lot of uh, people looking serious. You get to see Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa Faust with an eye patch mm. at one point, which is a, an interesting it's wrinkle. A strong I wonder look what, for her. 
It is a very strong look for her. Uh, I wonder what happens there. Uh, and it just looks tremendous. There's a, there's a submarine. There's a train falling off a cliff. There's all sorts of shenanigans going on. And then, of course, it finishes with what I think is the film's big stunt, the one that they, they, they shot on day one, which is Tom Cruise driving a motorcycle off a fucking cliff, the deranged maniac. <laughs> but more on that later in our review yeah. of Top Gun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I Honestly, his commitment to that sort of stuff is, is staggering. He's unbelievable. I saw, I saw someone poo-pooing it uh, and scoffing at the notion they've gone, Tom Cruise didn't ride a bike off a cliff. And it's like, he did. He like definitely eight did. times. Yeah, so there's footage. I've, I've, I've seen the footage. Uh, but, you know, Macquarie said this to me one of the podcasts, one of the mission podcasts we did. It's like they go to these great lengths to get Tom Cruise to actually do these stunts for real. And then there are people who go, yeah, CG. He didn't actually do that. No, he did. He fucking did. Anyway, it looks great. Uh, I'm all in on it as you might expect. Mission mm. Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and other things that you would expect to be all in on, not mm. least because it's the cover movie uh, this month on Empire, is The Grey Man. But this looks like a ton of fun. Yes, like proper kind of just classy spy nonsense. And I say this with love, but you know, like a big old spies chasing spies around different cities in the world and things blowing up and people shooting people and running and looking a bit concerned and a horrible, horrible, horrible moustache. I mean, what's not to love? Do you know what I mean? Horrible, but also kind of fabulous in its own way. I mean, if you if you hate joy and love evil, then yeah, that's the moustache for you. Like, sure. I, I get, I get yeah. that they've got to offset his tight top somehow, lest we sympathise with the villain, but... I mean that that's that's a horrible thing. Anyway, but but I'm sure it's great for the character or whatever. But it's hate, just- joy, love, evil be a great tagline for <laughs> the Chris Evans character posters. I think, but yeah, it looks like a ton of fun. The Gray Man, and that's going to be out on Netflix in July. What, what? A full year before Mission Impossible Seven. Ah, oh, and yet neither is coming soon enough. So there you go. Ah. Oh. Oh my god. Anything else? Yes. Any non stuff? Speaking of things rushing towards us extremely quickly. Um, Fast 10. Fast 10 has asked Rita Moreno as Dominic Toretto's (laughs) granny. (laughs) Sorry, what? (laughs) Yes, it's Mad Libs news again, people. (laughs) Oh my God, the manatees have been working hard this week. (laughs) I, I, I I genuinely, I don't understand what reality is anymore, uh, but I mean, you know, what's wrong with us, guys? None of us have been cast in Oppenheimer. None have been. Ca- none of us have been cast in Fast Ten. I, I don't like. Should we be hurt? Should we be upset? What's wrong with us? What have we not done in our lives? Or Barbie? Or uh, someone Barbie. else? Uh, yeah. Someone replied to you this week saying, "If you haven't been cast in Barbie, Oppenheimer, or Fast Ten, then what are you doing with your life?" And uh, yeah, I feel yeah. that we all qualify in that regard. Uh, Rita Moreno. Wow, Rita Moreno. this is yeah, joining. I mean, look, proper. joining Charlize Theron, Michelle Rodriguez, Natalie Emanuel, Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, Jordana Brewster, Sun Kang, Scott Eastwood, Michael Rooker, Cardi B, Jason Momoa, Brie Larson, Daniela <laughs> Melchior, Alan Richson, and a partridge in a pear tree. So, and of course, Vin Diesel. Oh my God. Yeah, exciting. Wow. Isn't it? What? Uh, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, great. Yeah. Look, we love her. We love these films. We love these big, stupid, dumb films. I just, what is happening anymore? I just don't understand it, but no. I'm delighted. 
Do we love these big dumb films at this well, point? Well, we don't love all of them, but you know, we're just I'm I personally am always hoping they can recapture the glorious insanity of 5 and 7 and if they can do that, if Rita Moreno helps them get there, <laughs> then brilliant. Honestly, I think this might be a signal that they are moving into the musical genre. (laughs) They have to at some point. There were moments in Fast 9, I said this before, but there were moments in Fast 9 where it seemed like Dom was on the verge of breaking into song, which if anyone's heard Vin Diesel's singing voice is a horrifying (laughs) prospect for all, all concerned. But they honestly, they might as well, because at this point, it's the next logical step and it couldn't be any less fucking stupid than what they actually have planned. Or... What we saw in Chippendale uh, Rescue Rangers, the movie, not the TV show, where they suggested Fast and Furious Babies. <laughs> I, I mean, all I've seen is the poster. Yeah. I don't Isn't that pretty concept. much the cartoon, Fast and Furious? <laughs> I guess it kind of is. See, someone on last week's pilot, one of the, the, the listener question was, you know, if you'd gone back in time, however many years, like 10 years, 20 years, what development would have surprised you the most in terms of TV? But from a film perspective, this surely has to be one of them. Like when I stumbled out of the UIP screening room in Golden Square way, way back in, was it 2000? 2001. 2001. 2001. You know, having watched the Fast, having watched the Fast and the Furious, the best of the franchise. Uh, oh, you know, no. I, I just, I, if you told me, yeah, well, in 22 years' time, you'll be waiting to watch Fast 10, at which point they'll have already gone into fucking space and fought a submarine. <laughs> I'd have gone, what? Uh, also, and yet, here we are. <laughs> also, three Oscar winners. Not yeah. with Rita Moreno, Brie Larson, and Charlize Theron. What? Do you think, do you think Finn's trying to absorb some of that Oscar winner <laughs> glitz by osmosis? Just that energy? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, hey, anyway, listen, Helen, you're burying the lead with this Rita Moreno casting news, and you kind of you glossed over it very, very quickly because last week it was announced, of course, that Scott Eastwood is back, as you have said, as <laughs> Google's character name, as as, <laughs> as handsome agent man, little nobody, little which is what no- I call my penis. It's really bizarre. <laughs> Isn't should that Scott- be what? Isn't shouldn't that be what uh, Kurt Russell calls his penis in the, these movies? Oh my God! Do you think that Scott Eastwood is playing the living manifestation of Kurt Russell's penis in the Fast and Furious movies? No. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he's back. <laughs> Scott Eastwood is playing Little Nobody once again. He was last seen, of course, in Fast and Furious Eight. So he skipped number nine. Uh, in fairness, that was a wise decision. Mm. In hindsight, a good decision. Uh, so is, is Kurt Russell in this one? Is he back, Mister uh, Nobody? Not that I know of. I can't remember whether he's dead or not, Mister Nobody. Well, that was left very unclear in number nine. Who can forget? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's still he's still missing. Oh, such a shame. Uh, anyway, Scott Eastwood's back. So that's very very exciting. Well done, everybody. Uh, and there was a one other piece of movie news that broke last week, just before we put the podcast up, uh, which is that Margot Robbie is in talks to star in a new Ocean's Eleven movie. Yeah. But this time, one set in the 1960s. Okay. Um, I guess that's kind of... So going back to the setting, the, the, the con- then contemporary 60s setting of the Frank Sinatra Rat Pack film, but with girls like Ocean's Eight, potentially. Yeah. Uh, maybe yes. not only girls. Maybe not only girls. Yeah, that would be that would be reductive. Surely, mm-hmm. let's mix it up a bit, shall we? Um, you know, let's give men their shot. 
It's been it's <laughs> been it's been it's been too long. We've been on the outside looking in. All we want to do is break the glass ceiling. That's all we want to do. That's all I'm saying. Right. Well, I mean, usually glass ceilings do get broken in oceans movies. That that kind of seems like the kind of thing they'd do. Floors, ceilings, walls, yeah. you know. So that works. <laughs> seems like the sort of thing a bloody clumsy bloke would do. <laughs> Fall over and break a glass ceiling somehow. Bloody stupid yeah. blokes. Uh speaking of blokes. Mm. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, poshest he man is, alive. Yeah. Yes. Is he? Well, he's the poshest he actor currently working, I think. I don't think he is. I think Tom Hiddleston's way posher than Benedict I, Cumberbatch. I think, actually, if you look at, like, family trees, I think Cumberbatch takes it over Hiddleston. Benedict Cumberbatch literally comes from, like, f- posh roots. Anyway, and has now been cast as a peasant in Paul Greengrass's The Hood. The hood. The hood. Yep. That's it. Uh, Coverbatch is going to play a farmer who will become the leader of the peasant revolt in England. And this is a hot property that was sold at this year's Cannes Film Festival uh, or announced at this year's Cannes Film Festival. And it's going to be written and directed by Greengrass. Mm. And in any Paul Greengrass project, it gets our attention, Amen. especially if it stars Benelin Cumberbund. So well done, everybody. Yeah, the, the, that title suggests maybe a Robin Hood connection. Um, and not just a, a, a dry account of uh, what Tyler's Rebellion. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, I like the idea of of Paul Greengrass and his you know um, slightly leftier wing notions getting involved in that kind of a story. Oh hey, hey one trailer we haven't even talked about. And we didn't even mention the fact that Jay Roach, unless you did mention it, and I forgot. We didn't no. even mention the fact that Jay Roach is the director of that Ocean's Eleven movie. True. Um, so reuniting with Margot Robbie after Bombshell, of course. Uh, but the trailer we didn't mention is the trailer for George Miller's new movie, 3,000 Years of Longing, which actually debuted at the Cannes Film Festival uh, last week or this week. The weeks are blending into one for me. Uh, And we knew that this was going to be his next movie. We knew it was going to start Idris Elba and Tilda Swindon. For some reason, and I don't think this is just confined to me, for some reason, I got into my head that this was like a little two-hander, like a little gentle domestic drama that was uh, George Miller was using as some sort of palate cleanser between Mad Max Fury Road and Furiosa, which he's about to start filming. And that's obviously going to take up years of his life, um, throwing bits of car around uh, the desert. Nothing could be further from the truth. This looks like an utterly demented, uh, visually dazzling love story that spans, as you might imagine, 3,000 years in which Tilda Swinton plays someone who summons a genie, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. played by Idris Elba, who then shows her examples of love and longing throughout the millennia. And it looks wild, and it has Madge from Neighbours in it. Sold. Double sold. I mean, I was pretty sold with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba and George Miller, but if you're adding Madge from Neighbours into this, I mean... Mm-hmm. One more the great Anne Charleston. Yeah, sold. Brilliant. Yeah. Sounds like magic. <laughs> so that's a, that's available soon. Uh, that's available now for you to watch, and it's coming out very, very soon indeed. So well done, everybody. So should we have our final guest this week? All right. Our guest cup overfloweth at the moment, and it overfloweth with the man I like to call Speedometer. It is, of course, Miles Teller, star of one of my favourite movies of the last 15 years, Whiplash. Since then, he's made uh, some interesting choices. Some have come off, uh, like 
Only the Brave, which united him with uh, Joseph Kaczynski, the director of this week's Top Gun Maverick. And as you will soon hear, that paid off for Miles Teller in terms of being cast in that movie. And some, like the Fantastic Four movie that came out in 2015, perhaps didn't. But uh, he is very, very good indeed as Bradley Rooster Bradshaw, the son of Anthony Edwards' deadified goose in Top Gun Maverick, um, which we'll be talking about on the other side of this. And he came into London last week and I sat down in an actual hotel with him and had an actual chat face to actual face. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast in person, which is always a delight by the star of Top Gun Maverick, Miles Teller. How the devil are you, sir? Well, I don't know if I'm the star of it, um, but I am. But I'm in it. <laughs> Do you want to read to the intro? To no, I, I, no, I actually like the way you said it. Yes, yeah, that's the way star. my parents are describing it to their friends as well. So damn straight, absolutely, because you know, no rooster, no party. That's uh, right. In, in this movie, that's and, right. Uh, you know, obviously, you had uh, you had worked with Joe Kaczynski beforehand and on Only the Brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had your foot in the door, so to speak. I guess, although one. it was like unbeknownst to me, Joe told me after he'd already done it, but I guess he, after he and I worked together, he flew to Paris, I think it was, to meet with Tom. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about um, a, a Top Gun sequel and what that potential storyline might be and kind of honing in on the son of Goose and 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 maybe you know who who could play that part or who or who joe thought would be great for it and i you know it was impeccable timing on on my part i guess the fact that we had just worked with each other and i was fresh in his mind before some other young actor had a chance to wow him so uh yeah but he he took a photo of me i guess to tom and showed him and tom thought i looked a lot like i could be anthony edwards and meg ryan's kid so that's what I think that's what got my initial foot in the door. That's wild. So what did he do? Did he take this photograph and then what, just use a Sharpie to draw a mustache on you? Or? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I guess you'll have to, you know, when you talk to Joe about it, but now um, every year for Christmas, I give Joe an updated headshot and resume just so he can <laughs> pass it along to whoever he chooses. And it's, it's worked already. You've worked again on Spiderhead. Yeah, I know. I know. So Joe, I think is um, five films now and I've, I've done three out of five. That's not bad. That's, that's quite a bit. When do you know you're clicking with a director? I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, it depends. If you can get on pretty early and you can have a good amount of conversations with them about it, then then that'll give you a sense. I always try and, um, you know, meet with the director before I, I sign on to something. So that initial meeting is pretty important. But a lot of the time you don't you don't really know until you start doing it. I mean, I've heard the analogy where you're kind of, you really are, you know, taking a leap of faith and you're jumping off a cliff with this person and you yeah you're you're hoping that your interpretation of of the character kind of mirrors um how how they're seeing it because if you're not doing a lot of rehearsal you really don't know until you're you're rolling camera day 1 which is well how Joe works tends uh, for, to work for Spiderhead we we had a little bit of rehearsal um where we could kind of go through the script and this and that for for Top Gun um I mean, I felt pretty good going in, into that that situation. Um, they, everybody involved in that, had spent so much time on the script and the and the and the process and the and the cameras and everything before we ever showed up. To be honest with you, that that script was was pretty was pretty tight. But we were constantly trying to to make it better. That's kind of the Tom Cruise mo is that it's there's always an opportunity to to revisit something even if you've already shot it there's a yeah. good probability you're reshooting it 
to be honest, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, I spoke to Chris McQuarrie for uh, for the magazine feature I wrote on the film, and he was saying that there was one scene with Tom and Jennifer Connelly that I think they did seven times. Like they shot seven different times. They did it so much, and I thought they were done. And then I remember I had to actually come to London to do some some. Uh, Additional photography, reshooting, however you want to describe it. And in the corner of the stage that we were shooting in, I saw uh, the bed from, you know, the bedroom. And I was like, oh my God, Jen is going to have to reshoot this again. <laughs> but what, So you're reshooting all the drama stuff, but the, the flying stuff, that was, that was pretty much, was that one and done for you guys in terms of? The flying stuff, we, we kind of had to know... Um, we we only had a certain amount of time with the Navy and they were very gracious yeah. enough to to let us go up there and, and film with them. Uh, but you would know if you had to reshoot something because you would go up in the air, you would do a lot of the, t- so they called a sortie and you would have usually maybe five different moments that you're trying to get. Usually that was about as, enough, as much as you could get before you, you know, would run out of fuel. And so... But you would come back and then you would, they would watch, you would watch the footage in front of everybody, all of the Navy pilots, Navy brass, uh, Tom, you know, Joe, a lot of times Jerry, all the producers, and you're just sitting there watching it, hoping that the lighting was right, your eye line was right, you, the performance was dynamic enough, which is Tom's, I think one of his favorite words is, it's not dynamic enough. That's usually the the note that that we would get before because it t- it did it took a while I think for everybody to get comfortable filming action sequences. I mean yeah. Tom's a master at that, but for me, I had never. I've certainly done some dramas with some pretty I think elevated um, tension levels and and a lot of stakes, but doing an action sequence is a entirely different um yeah it's, it's it is a different medium that's that's what i found cuz even on something like fantastic 4 for example that wasn't the big all out action extravaganza you might expect it was it was fairly certainly okay. not what we expected no what you expected. <laughs> i think <laughs> yeah. um and also just a, a lot of green screen i mean i i walked away from that experience really having so much more respect for you know the, the the guys and you know and the actors and actresses that are doing kind of these uh, big budget Marvel movies and such, just because it's tough when it's all green screen and you're really just trying to maybe you have a little bit of previs so you can get a sense of what it's going to look like. But yeah, you're acting with tennis balls and all kinds of things. It's it's such an imagination based um, you know adventure you're going on. Whereas in this, it was the complete opposite. You're you're up there in in the air. For if I'm right in thinking, about an hour and a half to two yeah. hours each time you would yeah, go up. Yeah, anywhere from yeah, an hour and twenty is usually kind of the sweet spot. Depends on how how much juice you're going. You know, if you're doing a couple sequences and you're really going like max G pull ups and you're really throttling pretty hard, then you're going to burn fuel faster. Obviously, so it's some. I had some flights that were you know maybe even a little less than an hour. My God, and you're pulling a lot of G's yes. uh, as well. Uh, yeah. Try not to puke, trying to keep hold of yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and then trying to give a dynamic performance. Now, did you right. ask Tom what that meant exactly? <laughs> Cause that no, could be- he would, I mean, honestly, like he would, he would show us, Tom would do, he was doing runs, you know, just like we were. And we would watch his footage and we're like, damn, he's good. Like, because <laughs> you think you're giving an intense performance, but also you're only acting with your kind of, you know, with, with your eyes, there's not, yeah. you don't have some of the other faculties that you have as an actor to, to sell something. So it, it did, it took a little bit, 
uh, for me anyway, to, to feel like to, to get a handle of it personally, I, I felt like I was the stuff where I felt like I was overacting. That was the stuff that, you know, ended up being the the best footage. That's interesting because uh, how do you act in a situation like that? Because when a plane takes off and you're in the in the backseat of these planes and they're taking off, I, I don't even know how fast they go, but very fucking fast, I guess. Uh, that is the that is the the actual term, very it, fucking fast. I that's think a, that's a technical that's, term. That's yeah. That's, that's what the navy says. That's what they use in the biz. <laughs> uh-huh. so you're going very fucking fast, and uh, well, you know, at some point you have to put miles to one side and and become rooster. So right. How do you how do you do that? Well, I think Monica, who plays Phoenix in this, she was talking about it, and she was actually really proud of the fact that we were all by the time we started filming, we were all so comfortable in the jets that when we would do these sequences, we were super like pretty calm and cool about it. And um that's where I'm saying I feel like the the overacting had to had to come in because you have to sell, you know, this in- intensity and different things. I mean, obviously the G force, you don't have to act that. <laughs> thank God. Um so there's certain things that are working for you, but but also certain things where you would have to add the kind of the narrative element, the story element, the emotional element that maybe we, you know, weren't necessarily feeling. But that's that's uh that's called acting, <laughs> right? <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about acting and on the ground. Let's talk about rooster. That's, and... That was my favorite stuff to do on the ground. <laughs> on, the, on the ground. Put me on the ground. <laughs> no G forces whatsoever, right. uh, because I think a, a lot of people. We can't go into spoilers, obviously, Miles. But I think a lot of people will be surprised by by rooster because it's not. Simply Goose Mark Two. No, no, he's not simply Moose Goose Mark Two. No. There's there's something else going on with with this guy and the relationship. I think with Maverick is is interesting. People might think that the the enmity between the two of them comes from the fact that Goose died in the first movie. Right. It's not quite that. There's a bit more going on. No, here. it's not. Yeah, there is a lot more. I think just to to surmise that that would be the reason why. Rooster holds all this resentment towards Maverick. I think, hey, I just don't think that really makes sense from buddies of mine that are in the military. If, uh, you know, if they have a friend who, you know, a buddy who's also enlisted, you know, passes away or something happens, you really become uh, a part of that that family's life um, for forever. I mean, that that brotherhood is is tight. So you can imagine if Goose, when that happened, Maverick would have been kind of his pseudo dad. You know, he really would have tried to be there as, as much as he could for Rooster um, but yeah, there's some, there's some other things that happen. I mean, 30 years in between films, a lot of, a lot of stuff can happen and we kind of explore some other, some other arcs and some other, you know, the audience will become aware of some other things that happened that makes for uh, good drama, as mm. they say. Where did you start with the character? How did you, how did you build him from the ground up? Uh, well, I, th- I think, like I said, just having a lot of buddies that are in the military and kind of what that means and having buddies whose parents were in the military as well. And it becomes this kind of legacy uh, thing. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of pride in that, that, I mean, these men and women who, who dedicate their lives to service, it's a certain kind of person that, that does that. Um, so I think, so I, I think that was a bit of the foundation, um, and then, yeah, just just trying to kind of put the pieces together. I did feel like I needed to pay a bit of homage to to Goose. Um, when Rooster first walks on screen, uh, I didn't want people having to to think too too long if that was Goose's kid. I wanted them to be able to like see me and know right away. Oh, that's got to be Goose's kid. And we were <laughs> able to achieve that, obviously, with um, the look. Uh, the mustache was was something that I kind of. 
had developed and then and then um you know the hawaiian shirt goes a long way i think <laughs> cuz he's paying tribute to his dad i guess yeah, as well for, yeah for sure for sure it, i mean it very well could have been his his dad's shirt you know i think that's something um yeah the middle although i don't have my dog tags because maverick freaking gets rid of them in the first movie so selfish <laughs> like don't you think his son is going to want those maverick god man yeah he's he's not one to think ahead maverick no uh, he's in, no in he, he's, he's not no, yeah. it's really not. He doesn't think about the uh, the consequences. <laughs> so, uh, tell me about your first Tom Cruise experience, then, because I know people who've met Tom Cruise for the first time, and it's been a long, long meeting, like eleven, twelve hours. Right. I mean, so I met him for the first time when I had to fly down to audition uh, for Rooster, and I w- walked into the room, and it was Tom and Jerry and Joe, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really wasn't, there's something about Tom. He's the biggest movie star in the world, but he, I know he's just very accessible. I don't know. He's very disarming. And if you're going to work with Tom, that you're, you're treated as, as you're a teammate, you know, it's not, it's not this hierarchy where sometimes you do on, on sets. Number one on the call sheet is there for them to win. And then they go back to their trailer and they're not really there for you. Um, so Tom couldn't have been more different than that. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, we, it was the longest audition I've ever had. Like we really workshopped those scenes pretty extensively and it was, uh, yeah, it was a couple hours I had, yeah, my wife was waiting and waiting for me afterwards and I had a buddy and his girl. And I think by the time I met up with them, they're just like face down at the bar that it was just taking so long. <laughs> did you get, did you get a sense after that though, that you were, it was looking good? I did not. I really didn't. I feel like sometimes I have a pretty good idea of it but yeah i just remember them being like how do you think it went i was like i i don't i don't know i kind of blacked out has a long time i don't remember but obviously it 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 it, it worked out <laughs> amazing and uh again i spoke to a couple of other members of the cast who said that you know that that tom basically said you can text me anytime you can call me anytime for, yeah. uh, for advice and i know that afterwards uh glenn got his pilot's license and uh, I know what a show off. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, what about, what about yourself? Have, are, are you uh how, how has this experience changed you? Uh, has it how, how has it stayed with you? Uh well, Tom did yeah, he he did say that and it was something that I think, you know, a lot of time people say that and then maybe they don't follow up with it or it's like hey, uh, new, new phone who dis. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but no, I mean Tom would he I mean there was a project that kind of came along and I was kind of thinking about it. And I just had some questions about it. And so I'm like, Alan, call him. And then we, we talked on the phone for, it was like two and a half hours. I had to hang up. I, I had to let him know, you know, before I hung up, I was like, Tom, I got to go. I mean, I just need to eat something. Like I've been, so I was just sitting in my driveway. I didn't anticipate it being that long, but, um, <laughs> but no, he, re- I mean, he really, he just, he loves, he loves actors, but he just loves this business. He loves making movies. And he understands that for this m- business to thrive, there needs to be a lot of people like Tom. There needs to be a lot of people that are making, you know, great movies. It just, it just, uh, the business thrives on the success of other successes. So he's, he's always there to, you know, to, to help you out. He really, he does truly want uh, the best. And I don't think he's worried about anybody cutting into his, like, I don't, you know, I don't think the movie, whatever movie I'm in, I don't think it's going to take uh, too much box office away from, a mission or whatever oh, movie Tom's doing. You never know. You never know. But uh, can can we talk uh, about Whiplash? 
for a second because uh, I love that movie. I I watch it at least once a year. Oh, nice! But it's also the it's also a movie where I can just be, I can just stick on the ending. I can stick on those last ten minutes. Right. Um. And I wanted to ask you about the last ten minutes of Whiplash because how long did it take to film that? First of all, well, the whole film was nineteen days, but the last week of filming. We were doing like 16, maybe even more, 16, 17 hour days. We were averaging over 100 setups a day. Uh, I think the finale, that final concert, I think that was probably two days. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, and people ask me, they're like, so did you have a sense that it was going to, I mean, if I was, while I was filming it, if somebody told, or even right when I finished, if somebody told me, you know, this is going to be nominated for Best Picture. It's really going to hit. And J.K. Simmons is going to win the Oscar. And, you know, Damien Chazelle is going to be because that was really Damien's first feature with a with a with a budget. And mm. our budget was not much. It literally, I think it was somebody said it was the second lowest grossing film to ever be nominated for uh, for Best Picture. And our budget was only a couple of left less than five million. But yeah, so I, I just remember the first day of filming. Uh, for me, it was the day we're doing kind of the dinner scene stuff where the guy's like, uh, oh, you think you're so good? Come play with us. Those are four words you'll never hear from the NFL, <laughs> you know, and it's that and I'd rather die sit, you know, alone yeah. and broken all these. It's that stuff. Yeah. And I just remember Damien, he would, you know, the camera set up and he, and he would say, OK, we're just doing he's like, we're just going from this line to this line, you know, and it would only be four lines. And you would maybe get two takes and he'd be like, all right, got it moving on because he understood to be able to, to get the movie and be able to get the coverage that he wanted. He was, it just, everything was so precise and we're moving so quick. Yeah. I had, I had no idea. I knew the script was brilliant. And I think as an actor, that's the one thing you can really, um, put, you know, that's a basket you can put your eggs in into because if the script, you read certain scripts and if it's like, um, you know, just use a one out of 10 scale. You can read a script and you're like, all right, even if we make the best version of this, mm. maybe it's only like a six. It's a movie that people will say, yeah, that was all right. Um, but I think if, if, if at least you have the, um, the option or it's like p the potential of, if you have the potential to be great on something, then it just becomes about execution. But when I read that script, I got that same feeling that everybody got watching it. I was just reading this and I was like, I was exhausted just reading it and thinking about playing it. And I go, oh my God, this is going to be exhausting. And then you add the the 19 days to it and it just really became uh, a force. And so much of that is with Damien because Damien, um, yeah, I mean, we know what he's become now mm. and he just, he's, he really is, is just so good. At, at such a young age, he was so good. It just strikes me that that, that movie and Maverick are kind of similar in a way and that they both plunge you in they're both about intensity they're both about achieving excellence they're both about excluding all other things to achieving this one goal and belief in yourself yeah and a lot of you know a lot of obstacles in both whiplash and um you know in this film and i think with you know with rooster as well there's a hefty amount of um you know doubt or maybe um yeah not belief in kind of yourself and your abilities and stuff and you need that other person um which we often do you need somebody else to really no, see it in you and to push you beyond your limits. Absolutely. Uh, well, Miles, I could talk to you about that. Uh, the connection between the two uh, all day, but got hey, to go. Now you can do it as a double feature. Once, once this movie's done, 
and you get the DVD if people still own those, then you can, you know, maybe a nice little Christmas double feature. What a delight. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying 20 years time, Whiplash Maverick would be a great way to go. Like, yeah. you know, you come back, you are now Fletch, you know, you're, you're now in that role yeah, yeah. as the, as the Uber bastards instructor. I know. Teaching a but group let's of put young JK drummers. in it too. So he can be super old and I can just really, really <laughs> give it to him one last time. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Uh, Miles Teller, it's been a pleasure. Thanks Thank so much, you. man. Appreciate Cheers. it. Thank you. Okay, so that was Miles Teller, and now it is time to talk about Top Gun Maverick, which is finally, 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 finally out in multiplexes. This is not one for the sofaplex, folks. It is time for the reviews section of the show, and uh, it's the only place to start this week. It's been delayed multiple times, but it is finally here, the long-awaited sequel to Tom Cruise's 1986 Tony Scott-directed action classic Top Gun that essentially turned Tom Cruise from a rising star into the biggest movie star in the world, a position he has pretty much held for the last 36 years. Hell's Bells. Yes. Yeah so, uh, This is bloody brilliant. Let's get the opinion bit out of the way first. But we rejoin Pete Maverick Mitchell, now a captain... Um, as someone points out, he should be at least a two-star admiral by now. But uh, now a captain and a test pilot, and he's working on uh, Mac 10 flying at Mac 10 um, even though, you know, there's a question over whether his entire species is essentially irrelevant in an age of drone warfare. But he is brought back to Top Gun for one last go-round. He has to train more recent graduates of the Top Gun program uh, to fight uh, to fly and to fight pretty much a an impossible mission, if you will, um, <laughs> which will depend on his particular set of skills uh, being passed on to a new generation of pilots. The uh, complicating factor for him amid all of this is one of them, uh, Miles Teller's rooster, is of course the son of his long-lost wingman. And, uh, and Pete has, uh, Maverick has essentially fatherly figure feelings towards him and is is caught up between wanting to keep uh, his quasi son safe and also wanting to not hold him back in in you know as a flyer so that's kind of his big i guess emotional dilemma in this film but this is an incredible action film and i think we're going to talk more about that but i also want to say it's an, it's a very very emotional film if you have any connection to the original Top Gun, this, you know, has a lot of respect and love and affection for those characters and brings back all those feelings and absolutely utilizes all those feelings against you and milks them for all they're worth, but in a good way and not in a, you know, a way that feels cheap, but a way that feels genuinely earned. Um and it just feels like it has so much understanding of why the the original film worked and what was good about it and 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 who Pete Mitchell is and why Maverick is the way he is and what that means for him as a person going through life. And then it also has this new generation of, you know, cocky young pilots writing checks that their bodies can't cash. And it also has, you know, some attempt at growth and some attempt to acknowledge the passing of time and some attempt to to deal with, you know, getting on in life. And it also has some of the most amazing fucking action scenes I have ever seen in my life. Um and it's just extraordinary. As blockbuster cinema goes, my God, this is amazing. I think this will what this won me over within the first ten seconds, even oh, if less. less yeah. Because it begins 
with the classic Harold Fultemeyer theme. It begins with the same kind of text introduction. And then, and this was a stroke of absolute genius, not only does it basically recreate that kind of montage sequence at the beginning of the first film, it then segues seamlessly into fucking Kenny Loggins. I was like, oh my God, yes! And everything you felt for that film, and we all have feelings for that film, came rushing back. And I think what's so good about this is that the first film is... It was a great film at the time, it was. And even now, we look back at it, it is still a good film, but it has that hint of cheese and guilty pleasureness to it, I think, now. Like, no one's looking back at it and thinking, you know, this is milestone cinema. You're looking at it and thinking, oh, it's fun, it's Top Gun, we all love Top Gun. Whereas it takes all of that stuff, all that stuff you love, the sort of machismo, though it, it's slightly tempered here, and the sort of crazy fighter plane action, but it turns it into something that actually feels like it has weight. And I think, you know, it, it's funny, like that they wrote about how they considered doing it this way the first time. They were going to have actual actors in cockpits, but they were all fucking passing out, you know. And the fact that this time around, they are actually in the planes in a way that, much like Mission Impossible, you probably don't need, because now you wouldn't need to have them on a gimbal with just like a blue sky behind them. You could probably CG it and it looked pretty you know believable but the fact that you're watching this thinking these are actually actors in cockpits vomiting in bags stowing their vomit and then carrying on with their scenes like it's incredible and as you say contains some of the most eye-popping extraordinary cinematic visuals i think i've ever seen and it's just like i don't know when i last saw something that was such a cinematic event as mm. this like it was just this is what cinemas were in invented for yeah like it's incredible and, and also like it, it's not just that the, the visuals are amazing in themselves that they, they look really good that they they convince it's also the storytelling within those visuals you can tell who's who and what's what and where's yeah. where the the clarity of the editing and the and the putting of this story together is extraordinary mm -hmm. it's absolutely extraordinary and full credit to to Joseph Kaczynski the director and and the entire team the editing team the flight team, I mean, there are, look, there are, of course, VFX in this film. There are. Um, there's a very long list of VFX artists. There is possibly an even longer list of Navy pilots, though. And it's and it's certainly <laughs> a much closer ratio than you would expect in 2022 or even in 2020 when this was due to come out. You know, <laughs> it is an enormous amount of real world tech in here. And that is amazing to see. Um, but it's the storytelling that makes it work. It's the storytelling that, mm. that really sells all of that. And oh my God, I think, I think, you know, this really shows Tom Cruise bringing everything he's learned across his entire career uh, into this, um, you know, in terms of storytelling, in terms of character work, in terms of what do the audience want to see, but also in terms of a lot of the stuff that I think he's learned from the Mission Impossible movies. You know, there's yeah. the same kind of beats here of here is, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to say it's an impossible mission. Here is a, an incredible challenge. Here are the steps we need to nail in order to make it happen. How on earth are we going to do that? And then kind of taking these young pilots through those steps and trying to to conquer each challenge in turn is, is, is amazing. It's an amazing to watch and again it just gives it that that clear through line you know what's happening and you know then when people go off and have little conversations on the side you still know what's where you are when you come back yeah. to work the next morning yeah it has a great narrative structure for it and i think it's one of these things where if you were a fan of the original or even just watched the original you will enjoy this as a film but also as this brilliant nostalgic journey that that, that hits all the notes you wanted to hit to make that work as a sequel but if you haven't seen the original it makes absolutely no difference this is still kind of blockbuster entertainment writ large writ as large as humanly possible i went to the royal premiere of this and i drew it every single second of it um 
you know, it's it's an incredible experience. If you can see on an IMAX screen, even better. They use IMAX cameras, and when it fills the whole frame, it seems immense. Um, yeah, I mean, it improves upon the original in every mm. single conceivable mm. way, and that's no mean feat. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. And uh, it's euphoric, it this is. film. It is. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was surprised by how moved I was by it and how yes. emotional it is. And I think this has been precision tooled to hit every beat and to make you feel every feel that you can possibly feel. But I think back to the time when Christopher McQuarrie, who is uh, who is a writer on this film, he's, he's a credited writer on this film. Of course, you know, he and Cruz go back a long, long way, as, as you all know. When he did our live show just before the pandemic kicked in, do you remember that where he came on? He mm-hmm. was just about to go start filming Mission 7 and Mission 8, but he would not shut up about Top Gun Maverick. And he was like, but in a really, really positive way, he was like, I, I think this is something special. I think we've done something special here. And this isn't a film I've directed. This isn't a film I've even produced, but this is, I think we've, I think we've nailed it. I think we've knocked it out of the park. And he's right. Yeah. He's absolutely right. I don't have a great relationship with the first movie. uh, Unlike you guys, you seem like very much in the tank for the first movie. I appreciate the first movie. I admire the first movie. Uh, Obviously it, it gave us Tony Scott who, you know, uh, you know, this is a second film after The Hunger, and you know it, it it paved the way for the much more commercially oriented side of his career. And I love Tony Scott as a director, and it gave us Tom Cruise, of course, as a sort of fully formed megawatt smile uh, movie star. But it's not a movie I have a great deal of affection for. I don't find myself sticking on Top Gun of an evening. I can I can feel myself already um, a year from now sticking on Top oh, Gun yeah. Maverick yeah. of an evening. This is. Uh, an extraordinary achievement that, for me, as to echo what you guys say, is so far, so far beyond the original in terms of its visual impact, in terms of the emotional impact, in terms of the character work, um, and it's 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 got a corniness to it, but it feels earned. There's an earned earnestness to the movie that absolutely works for me, uh, and I'm so glad. I have to say, I'm so glad that it seems that pretty much everybody who's seen this film feels the same way that this is, you know, this is as much a an evolutionary step for the blockbuster as, as Fury Road was yeah. uh, in, in many ways, or as, as Fallout was for the, you know, for the American blockbuster, as, as those movies were, uh, in that it's, it's taking something that you love and taking it to the next level. And I'm so glad that everyone else is kind of on the same page of this movie because, you know, full disclosure, I saw this movie <laughs> a while ago. You did, yeah. <laughs> and uh, because I was writing the Empire feature on the movie and it was finished. And um, it had been finished for a while. And so <laughs> can we see the movie? And yes, you can see the movie. So I saw this last year. I saw it about a year ago. And I came out of it absolutely punching the air and triumph going, holy shit, that was incredible. And then I had to wait a year for other people to see it. <laughs> and so for a year, like you kind of convince yourself that you may be going a little bit you know, off beam with this. But... Yeah, I'm thankfully I'm not. I've been exonerated by, by everyone else's <laughs> responses to it. It's so good. It's so good. So good. This is the thing. Look, could I quibble with it if I wanted yeah, to about some of, of the cheesiness? About the yeah. fact that I think the love story is a little underbaked. I appreciate that they don't, you know, telegraph and overexplain every single thing in it. But you know, maybe another scene or two wouldn't hurt. But I'd, I'd like uh, these are quibbles. They really are because it's it's just the power of this film is is unbelievable. Oh, I love mm-hmm. it. 
It is. Uh, there's an awful lot to talk about in terms of Maverick as well, and and how he doesn't. He's not an infallible character. He mm. does make mistakes, and he is. But you know, he does. He is a bit of a jackass. He does need to be taken down a peg or two every now and again. Uh, and there's some really, really lovely stuff. I do actually really like the relationship with Penny Benjamin. Oh, I do. Who too. is yeah. played by Jennifer Connelly in yeah. in this movie? And but the, but the main thing for me, the main takeaway from it is the relationship between. Um, Maverick, and not just Rooster, but the rest of the the young guns, uh, as you as you heard me say them, uh, as you heard me describe them earlier on, uh, and Glenn Powell, for example, Amazing. I saw Ben David Grabinski, the director, uh, did a tweet thread about this yesterday, where he was just like, "Holy fucking shit, this is the best movie of all time, essentially," and I'm going to see it 50 million times on an IMAX screen, and. And one of the, one of his tweets was, "Congratulations to Glenn Powell on becoming a huge movie star," mm-hmm. and because I feel he is. And uh, his backstory is incredible because he he went for the role of Rooster, didn't get it, was gutted. They offered him the role of Hangman, who is kind of the antagonistic kind of Iceman in the movie, but also kind of not. And they offered him the role and he didn't really want to do it. And then Cruz was like, no, no, no. Trust me, this is going to be worth your time. And he's great. And he's been great in so much over the years. Uh, he's. He, I feel like he's been like tiptoeing on the on the edge of stardom for way too long. Yeah. Like um, everybody wants some. He's so yeah. great, and he steals every so scene good. he's in. He's great as John Glenn in Hidden Figures. Like so just good. so charismatic in that. He mm-hmm. needs to be a major major movie star right now already. Yeah. Come on, enough messing around. And he's really interesting. And I interviewed him again for the magazine, and he's really interesting. And in you don't get many actors who will admit that they want to be huge movie stars. And he said, I want Tom Cruise's career. That's the that's the guy who inspired me to become an actor. I want to do what he does. And I've had chats with him about how I can do that. Well, one of the best ways you can do that is by being one of the standouts in one of the films of the year, which frankly, this is. And he really pops on the screen. Uh, so yeah, congratulations to Glenn Powell on becoming a huge movie star. Congratulations to Top Gun Maverick for, for becoming... <laughs> and this is a horribly hackneyed phrase, but an instant classic. It is phenomenally good. And we gave it five stars. Quite right. Quite right indeed. Uh, what else would you like to talk about? There's there there are some films have dared to come out this week. <laughs> some films have. The, the, yeah. the what were they thinking? The bloody cheek. <laughs> well, <laughs> I saw one that is one letter away from a film that's very close to both of our hearts and also stars somebody from Top Gun, Chris. So uh, Top Secret, of course, uh, starring Val yes. Kilmer. I saw a film this week called Cop Secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an Icelandic film. <laughs> Yes, from and I apologise again to Scandinavian listeners. I'm, we're about to do it again and get some names wrong, but it's directed by Hannes Halderson, um, and he is, he was the goalkeeper in the Icelandic football team. I think in the, was it the last World Cup? He saved a penalty from Messi. So definitely he's quite the wrong good person. at other things. He's also, it turns out, a film director, and this is kind of a parody kind of of American cop films, but in Iceland. And the twist is that the two super tough uh, cops who are forced to work together, one of them slovenly, slobbish and a bit down at heel, and the other one super rich, super handsome and super, super groomed all times. The, the joke being here that the super tough cop is in love with his partner and not just, uh, you know, in some kind of bromance. It's a full-on romance. So this is a, a film which occasionally bumps up against uh, 
budgetary limitations and I think its tone is not always consistent. Sometimes it's going for quite broad comedy, sometimes it's going for something more subtle, sometimes it's going for something much closer to actual drama. But um, but I generally had a lot of fun with it because I didn't know where it was going from one moment to the next, and uh, mm. and it felt original in a way that not a lot of these do. And and it did you know it did have some direct lifts from other films. You know it's clear that Halderson is a big fan of some Edgar Wright stuff. Um, there's some editing there that's very uh, very right. There's some um, very <laughs> Michael Bay shots uh, in here which you will absolutely recognise from Bad Boys and the like. Uh, but uh, it's also got that Icelandic sense of of kind of silliness in it. So yeah, I had a ball. Sounds great. Uh, I love that. I love that. I love his backstory. It's it's phenomenal. Uh, you often hear if you read reports about the Icelandic national team. Yeah, there, a lot of them are professional footballers now, like fully professional footballers. But because it was such a small nation, you get sometimes these smaller nations, and sometimes their national footballers will be moonlighting. They'll have day jobs, and you get this a lot in the FA Cup, uh, where a small team will be picked against a big team in the third round, and then you know they they'll do stories on the human interest stories on them because their star strikers a postman, or something like that. And so I love the idea that his day job, his the thing he moonlighted as, was a film director, and that, that, that's amazing to me. Well done, him. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Alison Becker, the gauntlet has been thrown down, my friend. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I haven't seen this yet. I'm very, very excited to do so. Not least because of his his uh, proximity to Top Secret, but also I hear I hear good things. And I feel as uh, part of the football to represent my my football massive, uh, my football brethren. Uh, I should see this. So, so we haven't got an official Empire review. I think it's probably a three. I mean, it is a bit up and down, but at the same time, I just I, I loved so many of the ideas in it so much. So I think I'd probably go three. All right, three stars then for Cop Secret. We gave the following film four stars. Spoiler alert! And it is the Bob's Burgers movie, which is the and I don't honestly know why it's taken them this long to make a movie version of Bob's Burgers, which is, of course, the beloved animated sitcom, uh, which follows a, a family led by Bob, of course, voiced by H. John Benjamin, his wife, Linda, voiced by John Roberts, and, uh, and their children, Tina, Dan Mintz, Jean, Eugene Merman, and Louise, the wonderful Christian Schaal. And uh, this is a a movie, so it's a little bit more lavish, a bit more big budget, a bit more epic in scope, uh, in which they uh, are in arrears to their bank. Bob needs to sell burgers in his burger store, uh, loads of burgers by the end of the week. And that task is made even more onerous whenever a giant sinkhole opens up in front of their shop. Uh, and then a body is discovered in that sinkhole and all sorts of shenanigans ensue. Uh, I thought, I think I'm the only person here who's seen this, I thought this was hilarious. I had a, an absolute blast with it. I haven't seen every episode of Bob's Burgers, uh, but it makes me want to dive deep, deep, deep into it. Um, I thought, you know, rudimentary animation styles aside, it's it's sweet it's funny, it's imaginative, it's daring, it's got some amazing lines of dialogue. The dynamic between the family members is great. Everyone gets an arc, everyone gets something to do, everyone has a concern. There are wonderful guest roles for the likes of Kevin Klein and Zach Galifianakis and 
Yeah, it just it just tickled me immensely. So we gave us four stars and I'm in full agreement on the Bob's Burgers movie. Go get yourself a slice. Can you get yourself a slice of burger? I think you should. <laughs> Make okay. it happen. All right. Uh, and so that's in cinemas, the Bob's Burgers movie. That is in cinemas. But on your Sofaplex is a film that was added to Disney Plus without really a lot of fanfare last week. It is called... Sneakerella. Now, if I were a betting podcast host, Helen O'Hara, mm-hmm. I would say that this is in some way a spin on Cinderella. What? Where do you get these crazy notions? I don't know. Yes, that's it. Okay. Yes. Um, this comes from director Elizabeth Allen Rosenbaum, who's done basically every TV show going. And um, this is, a, yes, it's a musical version of Cinderella set in New York sneaker culture. Our hero is Elle, who's played by It's Chosen Jacob, as in he was Mike in the movie It. Um, Mm -hmm. And he is a put-upon clerk working in a shoe store that used to be owned by his late mother, is now owned by his slightly mean stepfather. Uh, But he dreams of being a sneaker designer, or trainers, if we're speaking proper English. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And he manages one day, he he happens to meet a girl called Kira, played by Lexi Underwood from Little Fires Everywhere, um, who uh, believes in him and inspires him and encourages him. And also, it turns out, is the daughter of essentially Mike Jordan, Michael Jordan. She she is essentially the heir to a sneaker empire. Um, So there's a sort of... You know, she's the kind of prince charming, if you will, here. He's the put-upon kitchen maid, um, but he has a real talent for designing sneakers. There's, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff here. The young leads are very charming and very sweet. It's well shot. There's a huge amount of CG, which I imagine was probably demanded by COVID. Maybe this was produced under COVID, but it sort of certainly gives it a sort of magical realist edge to this film, which actually Mm -hmm. kind of works with the subject matter. The 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 musical numbers all have the feeling of someone who has watched a lot of Hamilton then sitting down to write a song about shoes uh, instead of the American Revolution. So they feel a little bit echoey of other better things that you're not watching as you're watching this. And for my money, the biggest problem this has is it's way too long. It's pretty much two hours. No way should this be over 90 minutes. I'm sorry. It just shouldn't. It's a film about trainers. It's That's no, just no. So just no. I would just no. So I would have kept it a lot shorter, a lot tighter personally from my money. But look, I really like the um the the two leads. Uh, I thought they were super charming. I, I I think the the shoes looked weird and cool, which is probably all you can ask in a film like this. I just wish it had been a little tighter and neater in its storytelling. Um but, you know, I'm I feel like there are kids out there who are going to love it. <laughs> All right, Martin McFly. Um, okay, so where are you? Two, three? I'm, I'm personally, I'm probably a two. I feel a little bit mean because, like I say, I think they're great and they're very talented young people. But I sound like a granny. You're a very talented young person, but I just didn't quite get what all the fuss was about with your gutties, you know. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I am probably a two. I'm afraid, but, but right. I, I do think that there's a lot of good things in it. I just don't think it all hangs together. All right, fair enough. Uh, so two stars then for Sneakerella. And uh, I'm going to mention as well, uh, Get Carter, which has been re-released this week in a few locations around the country in glorious 4K. So you can really see the murk. You can really see the darkness of Ian Hendry's eyes. 
uh, like piss holes in the snow is the famous line in this movie, which is Mike Hodge's debut movie. Of course, it stars Michael Caine as a as a London gangster who returns to his hometown of Newcastle. Um, never mind the accent. <laughs> just just feel the width uh, because he his brother has died and he suspects his brother might have been bumped off and he begins to investigate it and uh, begins to rub some wrong up the wrong way and suddenly it is all about Get Carter. Uh, it is a phenomenal movie. If you haven't seen it, it is hard bitten. It is misanthropic and miserable and bleak as hell, but it features one of the great, iconic Michael Caine performances. It is filled with incredible lines that people will probably misquote even now. Uh, and of course, in Roy Budd's score, it has one of the all time great scores also. Such a good film. Uh, I've never seen it on the big screen. This 4K release, uh, I, I saw it on my computer. Still looks amazing. Uh, I would love to find time this weekend uh, to see it on a big screen. Uh, if you can go and see it on a big screen, then do so. Five stars. Five stars, of course, for the great Get Carter. This one, not the Slice Stallone remake. That's dreadful. <laughs> this one very is five stars. Very important to be clear on that. Yeah. Very, very important to be clear on that one. Anyway, on that note, that is it. That is it for this week's Empire Podcast, two five-star movies, sandwiching the reviews section. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by... Well, it's a dash cam triple whammy. Uh, dash cam is the second film from Rob Savage, the director of Host, which we absolutely loved. And this one promises to be deeply, deeply, deeply off-road uh, I'm very, very excited about it. So I'll be talking to Rob Savage and his stars, Annie Hardy and Amar Chada Patel. Very exciting. Until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, Captain America Civil War. Uh-huh. I like where your head's at. Hmm. <laughs> you idiots. Airport scenes. Damn it! What were we thinking? We should resign immediately. We should resign immediately. I will write a personal letter of apology to just everybody involved. <laughs> Do you remember that really old movie, Captain America <laughs> Civil War? Oh, dear. Oh, my God. Does anyone have any other fantastic or shocking uh, omissions from this, this category that they would like to put forward? Yes, but I can't I plan believe on, we missed that I one. I plan on thinking of them about 30 seconds after we hang up the, the uh, squadcast calls, so... It has literally a huge fight it's, between a bunch of Avengers. At an airport. What? Oh, what were what? we doing? What have we done with our lives? I mean, and in a way, Captain America, the first Avenger, because, you know, he's taking off you've in that flying wing. No, you've lost it now. You've, you've, you've ruined it. You've ruined it. You've ruined it. He's chasing <laughs> a plane in a cool car. It's a cool plane. It's a cool car. He's a cool dude. Peggy's there. Come on. Send in the car. Sent in the car. None of these are as good, of course, as Die Hard 2. That's just that's just the way of it. None of these films. Not not Casablanca, not as good wow. as Die Hard 2. Wow. Uh, Midnight Run, not as good as Die Hard 2. Wow. Heat, Heat wishes it were as good as Die Hard 2. <gasps> Captain America Civil War? Boy, sorry. Not as good as Die Chris, Hard Chris, 2. I don't want to alarm you, but like four different laser sights just appeared on your head. Um... Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. <laughs> anyway, on that note, that is it. Go away. Uh, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning squadcast names. 
Lieutenant James Nurb Dyer. That would be emblazoned on his F-18. Jimbo Dyer. You can be my wing twat any time. <laughs> <laughs> Should that be... Would that be wing twat or would it be twat man? <laughs> I mean, whichever you prefer, Chris. What's the most important part of that word? Is it wing or man? I would say wing. I would say wing. Yeah. Can I be twat wing at least? That makes me sure. sound like a superhero. Be twat wing. Okay. <laughs> That's 100% your superhero name. Oh no. It is time to <laughs> It is time to say goodbye to Goose Lives. No, he fucking doesn't, Helen. No, he was know. he was spread all over the <laughs> over his own cockpit, the moron. Helen O'Hara. <laughs> what is a chafing dish anyway? I'm very Tiddly. unforgiving on, on Goose. I'm tough on Goose, tough on the causes That's of so Goose. That's so mean. Oh, I think, look, if the success of Top Gun Maverick teaches us anything, it's that we as a civilization have not recovered from the death of Goose. Truth. <laughs> This is very, very true. And it's goodbye from a top pun, Maverick, which in itself is just a great pun. Uh, We've been talking about airport runs all the way through this podcast, and I'm off to do one myself, uh, because there's a chance I might try and get up to a certain city for a big old open-top bus parade on Sunday. Possibly. We shall see. Bring it home, boys. Bring it home. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.